Right, hello everyone. Uh, welcome to BizPod Behaviour Intervention Support Network's podcast. I'm your host, Sam Harris, and I am delighted to be joined by my guest today, Mr. Harry Thompson. Hello, Harry. Hi, Sam. Um, Thanks for me. No problem at all. Uh, absolute pleasure. I'm really glad you agreed to do the podcast. Um, for those of you that haven't heard of Parry, Harry, Parry, Harry before, I wish I had an editor. I can try and get rid of that, but I'm afraid I don't, so apologies for that, Harry get your name wrong in the first five minutes of the podcast that's a good start isn't it <laughs> sometimes i try and avoid calling myself by my real name anyway oh okay well, avoiding tactic ah. you did it for me so i can't help but be grateful i'd I love the spin no, you've put on that no editing is required Sam. <laughs> everything is under control i'd love to sort of feign that i did that on purpose but i really can't claim that but and that's ideal too we're off to a very pda friendly start well, well, Tell parents, try not to try too hard because the child will notice that you are straining. You know, all of the PDA-friendly kind of methods should just roll effortless, effortlessly off the tongue, unlike the word effortlessly off my tongue just then, <laughs> or it should be spontaneous and organic and flowing. So you're, you've mastered it so far, Sam. Fantastic. We're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to that. I'm just just in case some anyone that's listening hasn't heard of you. Um, Harry uh, has a book out called The PDA Paradox, um, all about his life uh, with. Well, I'm going to say with PDA because it's in the title, but from what I've heard of you speak before, you're not hundred percent on board with the pathological label. But again, no, it's definitely a problematic word. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I suppose I use it anyway out of habit and uh, for simplicity's sake after all uh, we are at such a rudimentary stage in our understanding and we are at the very inception of our uh, spearheading of this movement so I'll keep to PDA for now because Mm. uh, we're at that point where we're trying to uh, gain as much acceptance as possible. So is it is kind of a, a, a an umbrella term that we can attach to at the moment, if, rather than something that clearly describes what's going on for that person? I guess so. I suppose um, if I say PDA, because I'm so used to saying PDA as an acronym, I often forget about each letter and what it represents. Mm. So. Uh, there are various attempts to kind of rehabilitate the term, actually. Um, so people have some fun with it uh, because uh, many, many neurodiversities slash conditions have such a pathologizing nature to them anyway. But many of us will just uh, describe ourselves as such without paying much attention to what the letter uh, stands for, as it were. Um, but, yeah, come to think of it, the names are a cause for concern, I guess. Mm. And, and, you know, um, it's worth mentioning now that how you've got your own YouTube channel, which I use quite a lot as a resource to show other young people that I'm working with. Um, so, I, you know, if I work with a young person with, with a demand avoidance diagnosis, I want to try and send them in direction of other people they can relate to. Um, yes, the YouTube channel, that's my... Um that's like my second place of birth, I think. <laughs> That's where it all started for me. Mm. 
Well, um, and, and I was I was watching one of the videos the other day, and you were talking about that that idea that actually um, that the PDA the definition is not as clear. And one thing you were saying is actually how about defining it as an anxiety driven need to be in control? Um, is that something you still kind of would recommend if if you're trying to start, sort of describe PDA to someone in a snapshot sentence? Yeah, I mean, I play around with. Uh, what are good ways to describe PDA quite a lot. In my book, I actually take an anxiety-driven need to remain in control and put a positive spin on it and say, oh, I prefer describing it as an instinctual desire to be free. Ooh. Mm. You know, and some PDAers report that perhaps there isn't always an anxiety component. Um, obviously, that one's up for debate, but this is just uh, the reportings of people uh, mm. who, who claim to fit the profile. Um, and I thought, hmm, we know that it's a control need, and I really delved into what that meant, uh, because uh, I would notice how sometimes, if everything was going ap according to plan, and if everything that I was doing uh, was uh, in harmony you know, with my brain, with the way I am, then I would feel a sense of total autonomy over my life. So in that sense, it's like, oh, no, I don't really feel the need for control as such, because now I feel I have this sense of freedom. There's little need to exert so much control on the outside world. Um, but most recently, I wrote an article about fawning, the fawn response, mm. because many parents and teachers are confused uh, when it comes to how the child's presentation will vary across different settings because the way the teacher describes their pupil is uh, in stark contrast with how the parents will describe how that child is at home uh, because many have a tendency to mask or hold it in mm. during school hours. Uh, so I, I mentioned in that article, and I did do a YouTube video alongside it, uh, whereby I read the article uh, in front of the camera, so I'm almost positive this is the one you're referring to. And I said sometimes it's not always, uh, uh, not necessary, but we have to, we, we become so focused on the demand avoidant aspect of the condition. After all, that is part of its name, pathological demand avoidance, but we have to focus on the anxiety-driven need to remain in control. Yeah. And when we do that, we notice how the need for control can uh, take on different forms depending on the situation, depending on the company, depending on the environment. So at home, uh, if the child feels relaxed and there's uh, comfortable and safe and there's no impression in their mind other than mum and dad love me unconditionally, and that thought alone, knowing that no matter how they behave, no matter how much they push their parents, mum and dad's unconditional love for them is unwavering. You know, they get frustrated, their frustration uh, fluctuates, uh, but the unconditional love doesn't. So the child feels uh, held in complete safety by this. So their need to remain in control will manifest as uh, constant demand avoidance. But you've only got to put them in another environment and you realise, oh, hang on, suddenly they appear to be compliant. The teacher notices that this child remains under the radar. Uh, peers will notice that... In a, you know, in a kind of a dark sense, the child can be quite subservient around certain children at school. And this would defy 
the idea that they are in any way demand avoidant. So it's an interesting pattern of behavior that always uh, shapeshifts in a sense. So I think it's more important to focus on how does the child's anxiety-driven need to remain in control uh, appear on the surface? Because sometimes the anxiety will drive them to comply and to uh, fawn, you know, which is uh, the least known of the five Fs, fight, flight, freeze, flop, all of which are self-explanatory, and then fawning, uh, excessive people-pleasing as a way to keep safe. Uh, so I think it's more important to focus on that. I'm so glad you touched on that because... You know, I mean, I've been talking a lot about the fawn in, in the training that I do recently. I think, you know, th there's still quite a, a more common idea of the three Fs, you know, the fight, flight, freeze. And, and the idea that, you know, I, I talk a lot to people about the, the kind of more amygdala survival brain. But I think with, with anything to do with the brain, there's a, there's a scale, isn't there? It doesn't mean that you're either in your survival brain or you're in your logic brain. You're kind of flitting between the two and, and someone can be in a high state of almost survival mode but still conscious enough to kind of fake it to, to, to do there that There are form. definitely nuances and gradients that are worth uh, mentioning um, because sometimes when you're, the rational part of your brain decides to uh, engage in a duel with the uh, panicked part of the brain um, one finds that sometimes rational thoughts can prevail over the panic you know that kind of animal panic where you essentially uh, run on impulse and instinct uh, but then sometimes those uh, irrational responses those emotional responses can completely swamp uh, that uh, rational entity that lives within you you know I, I was having a conversation with a family member not so long ago uh, actually, it was a couple of years ago at this point, and I was talking about um, how, you know, in the past, not being able to impose any kind of control on certain behaviours, and they couldn't get it. They were saying, why? I would just say to myself, it's not worth it, you know, it's not worth reacting like this in this moment. I say, oh, yeah, well, my analogy is, you know that voice in the back of your head that tells you not worth it, you know, just hold it in, you're, you're going to regret it later on. I said that part of, that that um, entity within you is, towers over those kind of responses, those animal panic responses. I said, but my animal panic responses towers over the small rational voice within me, that kind of Jiminy Cricket-like uh, voice who is dictating what is right and what is wrong I said in those moments I cannot help but uh, explode or ex un express the unbridled rage because the small voice uh, the conscience as it were gets put on hold gets switched off it has no say has no freedom of speech at that moment so what so in that moment then um, say say you're someone like me who's perhaps supporting someone like yourself in that moment yeah. what's the best thing I can do <laughs> or not do <laughs> yeah well it's it's always a tricky one it's always a tricky one but I can remember and you know I've not had I've got to go back over a year now mm -hmm. when I last had uh, what you might call a, a meltdown mm. um, 
but I can remember years and years ago, if I were in that situation, at the risk of sounding selfish or blaming, it would have meant the world to me and it would have cut my anxiety in half if the person, the triggerer, immediately took responsibility for their part. Um, obviously, I'm aware that that sounds blaming, but I, a lot these days I talk a lot about a mismatch of experience, how one worldview often collides with another worldview. In this case, the autistic versus the non-autistic experience can collide. Um, so I would be in situations where I would seem to respond very strongly to what other people would say, that's just small thing that happened that did not warrant that enormous reaction um so and i would i these days i stress quite vehemently look to you something may seem small and trivial and insignificant and painless but to the other side to the person who inhabits a totally different world these things are tenfold these things are amplified and blown up right out of proportion so it, is, it means a lot to me when people acknowledge this uh, mismatch or difference in experience. So if they say immediately, not necessarily sorry and grovel, but what happened there? If they actually take interest in how they could have been partly responsible for that kind of eruption, then it does calm me down. And at that point, I will immediately apologize for anything that I've done on my end because you know I think it's important to even as an autistic person to understand how you know there's this there's some you know things that non-autistic people might complain about is oh god they don't they have no filter they don't hold their tongue they're so quick to point out the truth you know if I ask how they are they don't say fine they proceed to monologue about how terrible their day has been thus uh, refusing to respect these social mores so you know, in a sense, I have to acknowledge how, okay, from an autistic perspective, I will do things that are damaging to other people, but also it works the other way around. So acknowledging the difference of experience is is a, is responsible for a complete reduction in anxiety, as far as I'm concerned. So if the person immediately kind of thinks, oh, wow, what happened there? What did I do that gave rise to this kind of response in you? Um, it does calm me right down. Mm. And it helps me to maybe acknowledge how, on my end, I have inflicted some kind of harm on the person. See, one of the things we, we use in practice or we talk to parents about is a kind of empathy out loud model. Um, and it's, mm. it's along the same lines as what you're saying, is, is kind of acknowledging that just because we don't see that behaviour that that young person's having as logical from our perspective, we have to try and yeah. put themselves in, in, you know, in, put themselves in the, their shoes a little bit. Um, Temple Grandin's got a nice quote about it where she says about uh, it's not that autistic people don't have empathy, it's that neurotypical people don't uh, empathise with autistic people. Um, right, that's, um, that's a really good point. Oh, sorry Harry, I've, um, I've lost you there briefly. Uh, Hello. Sorry, you're breaking up a little bit there. There you go, you're back. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, carry on, I can. Yeah, so it's called the, um, it's... 
coined, uh, credited to, the, co- the phrase is coined by Damian Milton, um, to whom the theory is also credited, uh, which describes how uh, it's not that autistic people lack empathy, mm-hmm. it's that it's communication two-way street. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's, it, is, it is interesting. You know, there have also been small studies carried out into uh, how you can have a group of autistic people and then only one or two neurotypical individuals uh, and the entire group activity is based on autistic interest and autistic activity and the neurotypical will leave the group feeling insecure and broken and unsure and awkward, you know, much like how an autistic person will feel if they remove themselves from a, a neurotypical activity. So it is a two-way street. Mm. So where, you know, it's it's a very important point to make there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, I I guess, you know, I, 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 the, the way I would sort of describe it is that I've never, um, I've never been emotionally overwhelmed by someone telling me that my time on the computer is finished, for example. But yeah. I've worked with enough autistic young people to see those meltdowns, to think that this is not just someone having a tantrum because they want more computer time. Yeah, but, you know. yeah. Well, it's it's like a near-death experience. And it's uh, probably the third most common question I get asked. You know, people say, what are we going to do about video games? Mm. Uh, it's a problem. Do I just let them go on the games all day long? And I say, look, um, one, one, it links to kind of what's called global stability theory, uh, which describes how the world operates on neurotypical foundations. Mm. Therefore, if a, a non-autistic person has to come off of a game, their sense of global stability is stronger. So they have less of a uh, ledge to fall off of. But to the autistic person, the game represents a safety point. The game represents the only activity in their life uh, whereby they feel safe and at one with themselves and in control. So coming off of the game means coming off of the game and into a world fraught with uncertainty, fraught with uh, uh, fear and anxiety, and nothing seems to make sense and confusion. So... It's, it's, I, and I say that as a person who doesn't game. I don't need to game, and I tell my clients because I, I don't need to game because my lifestyle is in total and blissful harmony with my brain chemistry. So games would be second rate to this lifestyle, but for many children, it is their best thing. Not only their best thing, but it is so safe. And I say to my clients, it is up to you to demonstrate the safety of the world beyond the game. They refuse to be part of the world because they have uh, inferred that the world is not safe for them. So you trying to encourage them off of the game is like you're trying to coax them into a lit fireplace. You know, they have this game and it's precious to them and they feel in control and it meets their needs where nothing else on the outside meets their needs. So, you know, it's, it's my way of reframing how we see games as opposed to declaring it good or bad. We have to see it as a utility and a source of safety to the child as opposed to just a kind of form of passive entertainment and, you know, idle time-wasting. Hmm. Right. I mean, going back to something you said at the beginning that was quite interesting for me was, um, you know, we were joking about me fumbling over your name. It's not even a hard name, Harry, really. I mean, I just don't know how I managed that. 
And you were saying about, you know, having a, a very kind of, if you're supporting someone, maybe having a more kind of spontaneous, uh, less caring approach. No, not less caring, but not trying too hard is how you said it. Um, and that was interesting because, you know, when, when I started working with young people with this sort of diagnosis, um, that's kind of my natural approach, uh, to be quite honest. So, for example, if a young person doesn't want to do something that's a safety issue, I would always say to them, look, mate, it's my job. I, you know, that's why I'm telling you it, it's I've got to do it. I know it sucks, but yeah, it's, it's yeah, my job. Yeah. Um you know, uh, if they wanted to go somewhere and then they decided they didn't, I was kind of like, well, I don't really like Creeley anyway, so I don't want to go. And, it, you know, I found that to be quite successful. Um, yeah. But it's quite, it, I, I, I guess, um, from a neurotypical point of view, someone who's sort of either trained or supposed to be working with young people, it's almost very counterintuitive for us. We're told to kind of ask lots of questions, be really enthusiastic really encourage people into stuff i mean how does that how does that affect someone if, if someone's being like that i mean you actually answered the question then <laughs> you said you get asked to be enthusiastic and you get asked to ask loads of questions um so in that sense the person asking people to behave in such a way is asking people to make a marked departure from their nature and to be someone else. And that gets picked up immediately by a PDA child mm -hmm. whose mind is fine-tuned to suss out or ascertain any kind of um, abnormalities or anything off, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it's the kind of forced and strained nature that serves as a kind of, I don't know, a barrier between you, between someone's world and our world. Um, I find it very difficult to engage with people um, who are not willing to um, be as real as possible, because that means that I'm unable to build a bridge between myself and them. Um, and obviously establishing a relationship with a child uh, and um, building a rapport is the most important thing for a teacher, a professional, and even a parent to do, because PDA children are essentially unable to form those connections if they're not on the same level of some, as someone. So if someone has been asked to be more enthusiastic than they usually are, be chattier than they usually are, and ask more questions than they usually do, that's problematic in two ways. One, because they're not being themselves, mm. and that's like, whoa, who are you? I can tell there's no person behind them. Who, who, who are you really? And that would trigger a response of, you know, trying to kind of dig out the person underneath the facade that they're... So trying to sort of push their buttons, maybe, yeah, a little bit. exactly. Mm. And obviously, if it's excessive questioning, that could be very demanding. Mm. Wow, that's... So I've always thought of that from the second point of view you gave, that actually that kind of approach is actually quite demanding. I've never thought of it the other way, though, that it actually comes across as quite false. And now you've said it, that makes a lot of sense, you know. Yeah. It's not so much that as a, as a professional you're told directly to do that. It's just kind of the done thing that people are supposed to do with kids, I, you know. I, like a, that's you, it, yeah. Your enthusiasm will get them through the activity, but actually they probably, you're quite right, they, they obviously know that me, as a 37-year-old male doesn't really want to go down the soft play area at a theme park. 
Yeah. You know? So me going on about it is, is probably quite false. Um, yeah, mm. that's the thing. It's You know, the most remarkable thing about PDA is that it contradicts everything that we know. Mm. Yeah, 100%. I mean, when I remember, I mean, it was, I think it was back in 2008, I was working with a young man who had an Asperger's diagnosis and just all the traditional approaches with you know that you would use for an autistic person in terms of support yeah. would just just make everything worse they, uh, um, it's not being effective no it's, it, it's it can be damaging yeah yeah well it's, you know like for example a classic one would be you you tell him that he'd got a reward for some behavior that had been great and you'd almost see the behavior escalate instantly um yeah. what's that like if, if someone's praising you if someone's giving you um praise or reward for you is that because obviously you're you i'm going to do it now you your book's fantastic the youtube channel's fantastic so you know um, yeah you know well that's it that those are good examples um those were good examples i felt i can feel that you mean that that helps okay know? yeah I, I can tell you're not just saying that because you know you're you're trying to uh well yeah <laughs> Well, we're already twenty minutes in, so I've got you on the podcast now. So I don't need to. I don't need to kind of entice you in by saying how good you are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's um, it's 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 almost exactly as we described before in the situation before when we were talking about how a kind of pretense can be met with resistance on the part of the child. Um, I obviously I. I don't only operate as a PDA individual, mm -hmm. I have worked with many families at this point, and I have friends who uh, meet the profile, um, or friends who have children who meet the profile, and I have noticed that it's not that praise is never possible. It is possible, but it's a technique that mm -hmm. one has to kind of master. Um, for example, anything that I've worked hard at, and anything that I've kind of put into the world, um, if people kind of confirm the value and the merit of my production, then that, that's okay. Sometimes I might, if I have an intent, so if I'm giving a talk, I intend to articulate uh, the uh, inner workings and underlying mechanisms of a highly complex mind. So I want to know that the parents have gained from a presentation or lecture that I deliver. So if they come to me at the end and say, oh, you're a great speaker, then I might kind of recoil because that's not what I'm looking for at the time. You know, that's kind of like, oh, God, I'm not even paying attention to that uh, part of my presentation. And then I hyper-focus on it. And then I, it just, I tie myself up in knots. But I have to think about my intention. And if the compliment matches my intention... I'm able to receive the compliment. So we often have this problem occurring at school. So uh, the child may tear their homework up upon being complimented by the teacher or being praised by the teacher. And people are confused by that. And I say, no, the child in that moment is restoring the balance. Let's say they muster up every last morsel of energy they have and do the homework. Um, as soon as the teacher says, well done, the child feels as though they're not being congratulated for being themselves. The teacher demands something of the child that did not come naturally to them. And the child is exquisitely 
uh, attuned to this. Um, doing the homework did not come naturally to the child. That's for the teacher's benefit. Doing the homework benefits the teacher and the teacher only at the child's expense. So the child's way of ripping the homework up is an immediate restoration of balance. Wow, yeah. Okay. And then I say to people that they do want to be congratulated for something. They want to be congratulated for ripping the homework up. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for praise because ripping the homework up could not be a more natural response to their environment, uh, destroying the system, uh, in, uh, restoring the balance, um, not conforming. You know, everything about ripping the homework up is in total alignment with the nature of a PDA child. Mm. Doing the homework for someone else can never, ever be in alignment with the PDA nature. So would there be merit then in that teacher actually saying, oh, I'm really pleased you've done your homework, that really helped me? Um, you, it went distorted just as you made that point. Can I get you to repeat that? Please? Yeah, no problem. I was saying, would there be some merit then in the teacher or the support worker or the adult saying, I'm, re I'm really pleased you've done your homework, um, it was really helpful to me, I need to make sure everyone does it? Okay, so... There has to the focus has to be on the process, not the result. Very often the teacher is focused on the result. Mm -hmm. uh, child has done the homework and that is good enough for the teacher. What they're not preoccupied with is just how tortuous a process that was for the child. Acknowledging and empathising how doing the homework is just soul-destroying is more of a compliment. And who says... Um, Praise has to be synonymous with compliments anyway, because I find that very often just taking an interest in what the child is doing means a lot to them. Uh, you know, let's imagine the child who um, paints a picture. They do it um, because they choose to do it and show you it, which means they want some kind of response. You know, maybe just going, congratulations, well done, isn't adequate. Mm. Maybe actually observing the painting and commenting on their use of colour in certain areas and asking where they got the inspiration from would be more effective than a kind of a conventional uh, form of praise, you know, in the form of, oh, well done, good job, nice, you know. So actively taking interest in the process that the child undergoes um, as opposed to just focusing on the outcome and the result. That's a really interesting way of seeing it. I mean, um, with, with so with uh, with your work, then it sounds like you're now. Uh, I know you. I was aware of the book. I was aware you're doing training and the YouTube channel, but you're actually working with families and individuals yourself as well. In a in a sort of yeah, yeah. So um, I'm not doing home visits anymore. That mm. kind of came to an end. Uh, late last year but I still I still work with families via uh, video calls because um, it's it's important for me to um, it's important for my work and it's it, so it's important in a professional sense and it's also important for me to um, help families whose children have endured the throes that I did once long ago mm. so it's a useful way for me to keep my finger on the pulse of the PDA society, because uh, obviously at this point, it's not 
just about my personal experience, although that is an integral component. You know, I, I, uh, to me, I want to know what other PDA individuals have experienced, and you know, it's important for me to keep up to date with all the research. So, PDA is literally my life hmm. in and outer. <laughs> I mean, which which is why everyone that's interested in the subject should definitely check out your book get along to one of the training sessions and check out the youtube channel there you go i'm doing a bit of not self-promotion it's your your promotion for you there yeah i'll leave you to it because i'm not going to do it myself <laughs> good stuff good stuff i mean um there's like, so much we, should, we could talk about harry but i'm um, i'm just aware that you know we said we'd try and, i don't want to i don't want to keep you longer than you've got available you know what i'm having fun so you call the shots Excellent. That's, I'll tell you what, I wish my wife said the same thing sometimes. I know. That didn't sound very PDA of me, did it? No, no. I'm in control of giving you control. Oh, there you go. Well, there you go. Okay. I, will re- I will revoke that uh, that um, luxury from you whenever I feel like it. Fair enough. I mean, you're, you're perfectly at liberty to do so. Um, I mean, I get what, what, you know, what, what can we talk about next? I was thinking, um, actually... What was interesting about what you said there was you've obviously got an awareness that the way the PDA presents for you is not necessarily the way it would be for everybody um, on the spectrum. And one of the things that I uh, was interested in, um, I find with young people that I work with and and have come into contact with, the, the demand avoidance seems to be most present when the demand is delivered by another person. But there is a movement now of adults speaking out, out about PDA where there's also a suggestion, quite a strong suggestion that as an adult, it's just knowing that they've got to do something is enough of yeah. a demand. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I think the source of the demand is utterly irrelevant. Wow. It doesn't okay. whether it comes from the outside or the inside. A demand is a demand. Uh, this could be a useful way to distinguish PDA from ODD, Oppositional Defiant Disorder, um, which describes a child who uh, displays a, a pervasive pattern of behaviours such as resistance to authority. More person-centric in a way, but when it comes to PDA, it doesn't really matter where the demand comes from can come from a person on the outside it can come from objects it can come from bodily functions um the uh what's that device that, that apparatus you use to uh, you, you that you leave uh, dishes in to dry on the side of the sink oh good i wouldn't know what it's called dish dryer <laughs> let's call it a dish dryer dish dryer that'll do yeah. wouldn't it i find myself arguing with dish dryers right Okay. You know, what and how do they ever win the argument or Well I just think to myself, okay, whoever designed it knew that this uh this uh apparatus, this thing, this object, this device, um is only a temporary stop for the dishes before you proceed to place them away in the cupboards. So I tell it you are not a temporary transition. It ends here. This is where you belong, dishes, damn you. 
Okay. So what is that? Is that just so that you don't have to think about the demand of putting them away? There seems to be, there doesn't seem to be much demand surrounding washing the dishes. Okay. There's a huge demand. I just do not put them away. Okay. That's Seriously. interesting. So there's there's more of a de- so would that be? Do you think that's quite a personal thing? Good for you. Well, it's because um, I don't. I don't see the water that comes out of the tap as having an agenda. I see the dish dryer or the dish holder as having an agenda. Okay. So what you need then, it sounds like, is some sort of device on the side that does a multitude of things with no real hidden agenda that could be used for drying. I need to get rid of the damn dish dryer is what I need to do. Yeah, possibly, possibly. Seriously. Because um, the thing is with water coming out of the tap, that's a, that's a multi-purpose organism. Mm. You can you drink water, you use it to wash. Um, there, are, there are various purposes to water. Um, with that dish holder, it has one purpose only, which makes its agenda very loud and mm. noticeable. And would, would that be um, something that would extend out from objects if you meet a person that has a clear agenda... That is quite demanding. Is that that are they someone that's usually more difficult to? Okay, so the issue is everyone has an agenda all the time, even if it is benign Mm -hmm. and very low key. You know, even if a person says hello in the street, you know, I I think oh god, they wanted to say that. They wanted to impose themselves on me, Mm. even though I know that the intention is totally harmless and uh, benevolent. They, they mean no ill will by saying hello. I know that intellectually, but another part of my brain cannot help but process the simple, polite greeting of another as an imposition. Mm. That's yeah, yeah, because their agenda is they want to talk to you. You know, they've yeah. got it. Yeah. So, okay. you know, one part of me is like, oh, bless them. You know, they're such a polite person. Another part of me is, piss off. <laughs> Would it be would so then conversely then would it actually be better for people to just wear their agendas on their sleeve as it were and say this exactly yeah. and I have this this is where I actually challenge much of what PDA literature says uh, surrounding indirect demands because I suppose it might uh, be able to fool much younger children but I think as you get older you can't help but view it as patronising when people are like oh Harry sorry to trouble you, no pressure but I was wondering if you could pretty please uh, insert demand here Mm. and that makes me more angry than if they were just to come out with it. Okay so you were talking about disguising demand and that's really interesting because that's been a big, I'll be honest you know that has been a big part of what we recommend and work with but we do it in a slightly different way it's not necessarily disguising it's using something we call decorative language which is something that doesn't have to have a response and I say to parents you have to buy into it you can't say these little statements as a way of manipulating that person to do it you're saying it with the full acceptance that they might not and therefore it's less about tricking the person but actually stating the fact 
like if we don't leave now we'll miss the film is, is a statement of fact not oh you know well I, I wonder if how quickly you can get on the bus to go to the cinema because that would be more the kind of manipulative sure. sense yeah I mean now there, there's a there are two parts to that because um, now we have to acknowledge how phrasing is separate to, to expectation mm. right um, so there's often a good example used in PDA literature such as um, oh instead of uh, demanding they put their shoes on and walk out the front door race them offer them a race mm. to the front door and now, in the, uh, in the latter example, it's not just that the phrasing changes, but the whole dynamic changes, you know? So, you know, like when you say, oh, I bet you can't do this, I bet you can't do this in under, you know, that changes everything. That changes the, the nature of the expectation. And that's important as well as just changing the phrasing. Uh, and often parents might find themselves in a situation where they use uh, reverse psychology uh, when the phrasing is the total opposite to the expectation. Like, mm. well, you don't have to do that when really inside they want them to. them to do it and they are desperate for them to do it. So it's always important to, for, the, uh, for the caregiver, for the teacher, for the professional to ask themselves, is my expectation, does my expectation match the phrasing? When I say, I bet you can't do that, am I saying it because I genuinely want to see if they can do that? You know, it's always important to monitor one's uh, ulterior motives or hidden agenda. Um, so those examples can work so long as there is authenticity mm. in them. You know, if, if, like when parents go, oh, I can't work out this question. You know, I can't work out this. If only I had a genius in my midst who can, you know, support me here. Um, that works so long as... The parent literally cannot work out the question. Um, they have to mean it, you know. Um, so that's all I've got to say about that. Mm. No, that's that's very good. Thank you. Um, so I guess another another one that I would um, maybe think about in terms of. So I'm I'm trying to so I'm sort of thinking of what do I put forward to parents and other professionals um, about support that actually you can look at from a perspective of someone that might receive that um and one that's quite quite commonly talked about is is giving the choice within the demand so giving a choice within the demand so for example rather than saying to someone right time to go home your mum's here i might say to them um your mum's here do you want her to come upstairs and see what you're doing or wait downstairs for you to for when you're ready um, yeah. So then I'm, I'm, they know that it's time to go home. They know that there's, that's what the demand is. That's, that's very effective because in that example, you have honoured what they are doing already. Okay. They know, it's, they know that going home time is imminent, but in the same breath, there is no pressure to swiftly bring themselves away from what they're doing. Hmm. You've provided a kind of gentle descent from their current activity, which tells me that's quite effective, actually. Good. Well, it did work, so I'm, I'm yeah, not, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have shared it with people otherwise. But I, I guess, so I remember do, I was just delivering a course once and there was a, an autistic adult in the in the course and we were talking about the declarative statements and 
he actually said, oh, you know, I think I would find some of that manipulative. Um, and so I kind of was talking about what, what we've just spoken about, really, but also about um, if anyone ever called me out on it, I'd be very honest about what I was doing. In fact, one young person did. He said, I know what you're doing. You're trying to get me to do it. And I, I said to him, the only reason I make these statements is I can't make you do it. And I think it helps. Um, yeah. But if it doesn't, I'll stop, you know. So it, it, that authenticity, I think, is really important. And it's, and it's important to acknowledge how there's no uh, kind of ultimate unchanging toolkit. You know, the tools within the kit are likely to change mm. as the child uh, progresses, advances, develops. And then maybe don't just do away with tools that once worked and no longer <laughs> work because further on down the line, it may work again. That's so interesting. I've, I've been making a, a bad joke in the, the training recently that I've been giving about a toolbox. You know, a toolbox, you don't you don't get a screwdriver out, use it once, and then you go to use it again and go, oh, it doesn't work anymore. Bin it. Yeah. You know, you put it back in the toolbox and you use it later. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. So the toolbox analogy, although it's a cliche, it's a very, very uh, useful one. Mm. It just, I think it, maybe it's a commentary on today's disposable society that people seem to think tools can just be binned uh, if they don't work anymore. Um, <laughs> Harry, I am going to have to um, tie it up there. Um, right. we, we covered a lot, haven't we? We definitely have, and, and I want to try and make sure that they're easily accessible. Having said that, it's been fantastic, and if you ever want to do it again, if I can, if I can tempt you back to do another follow-up and just get even more in, in depth with it, then uh, you know I'd love to have you back. Um, yeah, I'm always up for changing the world one sentence at a time. Fantastic. Well, we've definitely done more than one sentence, definitely. I know. So imagine <laughs> how much we change the world. Fantastic. Um, so yeah, thank thank you for for coming on, and to everyone listening, thanks for listening. Um, please share the podcast, um, like the Facebook page, like the Twitter account, all of those kind of things help. We want to generate as much uh, free accessible information for people as possible and get some more great guests on like Harry. And if you know of any guests that you think would be you know, useful for people to listen to, then, then please get in touch. Uh, the email address is sam.harris at cedaronline.org.uk. C-E-D-A-Online.org.uk uh, You can find us at Cedar Biznet, I think is the Facebook page and at Cedar Biznet is the Twitter. Actually, I think it's Biznet Exeter. I really need to get more professional with this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just um, end it there so that Harry can get on and then have to listen to me muffle through this blurb at the end uh, and show my What's the word? That the, the, I was going to say the kids these days. Is it noob? Or is that even an old word now? You're talking to me as though I'm down with the kids. No, we, yeah, well, yeah, we're both stuffed then, aren't we, really? <laughs> but the rambling, you know, rambling is my native language, so... Well, that's, we're definitely speaking the same language here then. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>